0: Welcome to the Do Good to Lead Well podcast. If you're passionate about mastering self-leadership, then you're in the right place. I have always been curious about and fascinated by the pursuit of leadership excellence. This is why I pursued my PhD in psychology with a specialization in business, and I've continued to dedicate my career to understanding the science and practice of positive leadership. My name is Craig Dowden, I'm a best-selling author, award-winning keynote speaker, executive coach, and member of the Forbes Coaches Council. Each week, I'll bring you world-class content on the science and practice of positive leadership. Through my conversations with best-selling authors, TED speakers, and top CEOs, you'll be able to leverage their insights and experience so you can maximize your potential and be the leader the world needs you to be. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Do Good to Lead Well podcast series. My name is Craig Dowden, and I'm really excited that you're here for another episode. Today is going to be something different, and I'm very excited to announce a new wrinkle, if you will, to the Do Good to Lead Well podcast. This is going to be an ongoing series, monthly series, whereby at the end of each month, I'm going to share a personal episode whereby I summarize to you the latest and greatest research, wonderful conversations that I've had with top international thought leaders, best-selling authors, TED speakers, as well as conversations I've been having with my CEOs and other clients. And the purpose of this monthly episode is to give you a highlight, basically a recap. So I'm really excited to be able to offer this from this date moving forward. and. Couldn't be happier than to start this special series by providing an overview of my latest book, A Time to Lead, Mastering Yourself, So You Can Master Your World. So for the duration of this episode, I'm going to talk about where the book came from, how it came about, the key themes, and most importantly, critical takeaways. Practical tips, tools, techniques that we can apply in our personal and professional lives. So, jumping right in, the book was released mid September, September 13th, 2022. And it was a very exciting time, thrilled that it came together. We had a book launch in New York City and a live launch, a live stream launch. So, thank you to those who joined us and really helped in the promotion of the book. And the fundamental premise why I wanted to write this book. It came about during COVID. I was having ongoing conversations with CEOs and other executive clients and organizations that I was working with. And the common and recurring question was, how are we going to make it through this period? This was something that people were wondering about long before COVID, because in this VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous world that we were inhabiting, Routinely, new challenges were coming up, unexpected opportunities, really puzzling situations, and this got me thinking, okay, how do we address this as the world becomes more vucafied? And so A Time to Lead was born, and it was organized under the fundamental premise of great leadership starts with great self-leadership. How can we possibly lead others to the best of our ability if we are unable to lead ourselves? And what I wanted to do was scour the research and look for the key leadership qualities that separated those executives and aspiring executives from the rest so that we could have a solid evidence-based foundation upon which to build. On top of that, another aspect of the book that was very important to me And this came out during the publication of my first book, Do Good to Lead Well, The Science and Practice of Positive Leadership, where people would ask, "Okay, that's great. That sounds wonderful. But my organization, it's too big. It's global. It's publicly traded on and on. So there was this hesitation, reluctance to accept that these pillars of positive leadership would apply across the board. And I appreciated that commentary, that criticism in some cases. And so for this book, I really wanted to address that head on. And my initial plan was, was to have master classes at the end of each chapter that were mostly based on coaching work that I had done with some of my CEO clients and other C-suite and senior executive clients to showcase how these... Qualities apply, regardless of organizational size, sector, or location. And near the end of the rating process, I had the incredible, great fortune of connecting with Alan Mulally, one of the most widely celebrated and recognized CEOs of all time, formerly of Ford Motor Company and Boeing Commercial Airplanes. And we had a conversation about leadership about my initial book as well. And Alan and I really came together around our philosophies around leadership, our passion for leadership, and having a positive impact on the world, on ourselves, on our teams, on our organizations, and in our communities. And while he and I were speaking, I asked him, would he consider being the masterclass teacher, the sole masterclass instructor for the book? I was so thrilled that he was open to the idea, wanted to understand more. We had several conversations around leadership which I recorded and sent back to him and and we discussed how these master classes could look like and it turned out he was entirely on board, which I'm forever grateful for and we had Sarah MacArthur, co-editor in chief of Leader to Leader join us in this Collaboration, which was incredibly meaningful, learned so much through the process. And this put the final touches and a beautiful piece on the book in terms of those masterclasses. And that's why, at the beginning of the book, I dedicate a chapter so that readers can really get to know Alan, his extraordinary achievements, what his career looked like, how he was able to orchestrate and engineer remarkable turnarounds in two of the most globally recognized companies in the world and the key principles ideas that he lived by in his working together management system and so you really get a sense of the depth and breadth of his leadership journey his leadership success and why he is one of the most legendary CEOs of all time and why he is the perfect choice to be the CEO masterclass instructor. And once they were in place, then moved on to the seven leadership qualities. As I mentioned, I really wanted to do a deeper dive on the research, on the evidence, and present those that have been consistently found to drive exceptional self-leadership and exceptional leadership success. And so the seven chapters that were covered were as follows wanted to look at mastering our mindset, mastering our emotions, mastering our resilience, mastering our strengths, mastering the art of receiving feedback, mastering difficult conversations, and mastering authentic leadership. And the reason I chose the word mastering was because this is a lifelong process. It isn't master, which suggests there's an end point to this journey. It's mastering every single day. We are learning new things, exposed to new situations. And so it's absolutely essential for us to continue to remain open to those ideas and those opportunities. And we're going to suffer setbacks as well. So we're never, quote unquote, fully there, fully arrived, if you will. It is a constant daily. Act of dedication. Okay, so let's dive in to chapter one, mastering our mindset. It was an intentional choice that I started with mindset because mindset has a profound impact on our experiences and the words that we say and the choices we make. It's integral to recognize our operating mindset. And what I was especially excited to share was the groundbreaking research of Carol Dweck and her work around growth versus fixed mindset. And although her initial research involved children, it has been expanded and replicated in all kinds of populations and ages. And fundamentally, what her work has uncovered is that when we encounter people and situations, we can be in one of two mindsets. Growth mindset essentially means, I'm open to learning, just like the name suggests. I'm looking to be expansive. I recognize there are things for me to take in and learn from each situation. Fixed mindset basically means, as the name suggests, I know everything I need to know. There's nothing else for me to gain within this. And they are essentially philosophies around how we live our lives. Do we feel like if I put in energy, time, effort, can I move the needle in all different domains of my life? Whereas fix suggests, you know what? You've tapped out. Once you have a certain baseline of talent, you bring into the world a certain set of skills, and from there, you stay stuck. There's nothing more you can do. Investing time, effort, and energy is really a waste of time because you've maxed out. What's crucial around this is not only recognizing the impact of our mindset and how it affects how we interact with those situations, it's also realizing that our mindset is fluid. I can be in a growth mindset at time one or in situation one and drift into a fixed mindset in time two or situation two. And one of the most powerful takeaways, a critical reflection exercise for each and every one of us is to conduct an appraisal of the people and situations that we encounter and which ones trigger a growth mindset response and others that trigger a fixed mindset response. Chances are, when we look across the different examples that we come up with, there's likely going to be a pattern. There are certain situations and certain people that tend to push us more in growth mode versus fixed mode. And what's fantastic about that is not only the information we get in terms of better managing those situations and people we're currently in, We can also use that information and insight so we can apply it to future situations. So if I encounter other individuals, like someone who currently puts me in a fixed mindset, hey, awesome. Now I can recognize when I'm there and what steps I can take to move into growth mode. Let's move into chapter two, which is about mastering our emotions. To me, one of the most powerful takeaways in that chapter and in the research that I did is that emotions are essentially data points. They are invaluable data points, which are telling us how things are going in our internal world right now. Positive emotions mean good alignment in terms of what we're looking for and what we're getting. Negative emotions suggest there's a mismatch. Now, here's what's vital about this as well. We tend to judge emotions, positive emotions, good, negative emotions, bad. That significantly undermines our psychological and emotional health, as well as our overall success. As I mentioned, all emotions are valuable. So we don't just want to pay attention to the good ones and try to avoid or minimize the bad ones. What we want to recognize and learn From those emotions themselves, what lessons are these emotions trying to teach me right now? And one critical takeaway, again, I really want to emphasize the takeaways here, the daily practices we can benefit from. In a lot of cases, in my coaching work, people will say, oh, well, I shouldn't feel that in that situation. Right here, friends and family members say that. And so the more extreme the emotional response The more ashamed we are, or the more we want to avoid it or pretend it doesn't matter. In fact, what top thought leaders suggest that we do is be more, not less curious in those situations. When we recognize we're acting emotionally out of character, out of what the situation requires or would prompt us to react, now we want to be more curious. When I realize, wow, my emotional reaction, is a hundredfold. This is a small thing that I've taken on and amplified to an extreme level. Rather than pretend it doesn't exist or just try to forget about it, learn from it. Because this is likely going to be one of our biggest obstacles, a blind spot, something that can trip us up. And the next chapter is on resiliency. And certainly there's a wonderful linkage between mastering our emotions and mastering our resilience. To me, one of the most powerful insights in the resilience work that's been done to date comes out of the Center for Creative Leadership that defined the difference between pressure and stress. So pressure represents the extent of the demands that our external environment places on us. Stress represents our internal belief about our ability to deal with those demands. What I love about that definition and why I think it's incredibly insightful and impactful is that it demonstrates that pressure comes from the outside. Stress comes from inside. And here's the other thing, which I think is so important It also beautifully illustrates why two people who can look virtually identical have two different stress responses to the same situation. Because in one case, the person feels overloaded by the pressure they're under. In the opposite case, the same type of profile person feels like, I've got this. And what's wonderful about recognizing The difference between pressure and stress is that it provides us with insight about what to do to raise our level of resiliency and lower our stress levels, which is take a resource-based approach. And so many researchers and top thought leaders have reinforced this idea. What does that mean? Well, where do we get confidence from? It comes from realizing I've got this. I've got the resources I need to be able to tackle the pressures that I'm under. So another powerful takeaway for each of us to reflect on is the following. Go through different areas of our lives where we feel high levels of stress. And it can be one, it can be several. Don't judge them. Just write them down. And then look at what resources do I need to build? Either internal, taking a course, talking to a friend, or external, reaching out to a trusted advisor, ask a bunch of questions so that I can tackle the pressure I'm under. Okay, let's move to mastering our strengths, chapter four. There's so much groundbreaking work, a lot of it coming out of the Gallup organization, and Zenger Folkman has also done a terrific job of highlighting the power of strengths. And what this research tells us is that the more we use our strengths on a daily basis, the happier, more engaged, more productive, more creative, more resilient we are, which makes a whole lot of sense. And I love the definition of strengths, which basically says we have natural talents that we bring into the world and then through dedicated practice they become strengths. And so I love that. Strengths ultimately represent the natural talents we are born with combined with dedicated practice. So they don't just happen Naturally, we need to be focused on developing them so they can become a strength. And once again, when we think about this from a takeaway, so how do we take this insight, leverage this insight in our personal and professional lives? Another great reflection exercise to do was the following. Write down different activities that we're involved in, different aspects of our lives, things that we do on a regular basis. And then ask ourselves, to what extent do I leverage my strengths in this activity? And be honest. Be honest with ourselves around what's that rating. And rate it on a scale of 0 to ten. Zero being not at all, 10 being all the time. And any score less than 10, what we can do is start to ask ourselves, okay, what opportunities do I have to leverage more of my talents in this situation? There's a great strengths assessment from the Values and Action Institute, or VIA. It's free, it's online, and you can get a report of your top five signature strengths if you're not sure what they are. Or you can pick up a copy of Finder 2.0 from the Gallup organization and find your top five signature strengths. Moving from there, let's talk about feedback. And Ken Blanchard famously remarked that feedback is the breakfast of champions. And I'll never forget when I was doing a session, and one of the workshop participants said to me, Hey, if feedback is the breakfast of champions. Why are so few people excited to sit down and have that meal? I think it's a great question because generally, even though evidence suggests that we want feedback, few of us, again, there's a profound challenge in receiving it and receiving it well. So many scholars have pointed out that for us to be at our best, we must have feedback from our external environment because who we think we are and how we think we show up may be profoundly disconnected from that reality. And so what we want to be able to do is benefit from that feedback. The primary way to do it is to start with ourselves. Doug Stone, best-selling author of Difficult Conversations. His latest book, Thanks for the Feedback, groundbreaking approach to me, where in our conversation, he shared with me, Craig, there are so many books, courses, webinars on how to deliver feedback, so few look at how to receive it. And I couldn't agree more because once again, just like great leadership starts with great self-leadership, how can we look at, being the best providers of feedback possible if we don't light the way in terms of being a role model for receiving feedback. And there are so many great tips and tools that we can use and insights from the evidence. One of my favorites is to start with why. Let people know you want feedback and not stop there, which so many people do. So few people even let people know they're looking for feedback. And those of us who take that step so rarely explain why we want it, how it's valuable, and equally, if not more important, why we're asking that person for their feedback. Because we respect them, because we need their input in order for us to be at our best. And here's another common pitfall that happens when it comes to feedback. Expect disagreement. A lot of times, People will look at it and say, oh, well, since there's no consensus on the feedback, all of it must be wrong. Not a great way to approach it. And here's my personal favorite. And I mentioned Doug Stone earlier. When we were having a conversation, this was a mic drop for me where he said, Craig, when most people receive feedback, the first thing that they do is look for what's wrong with it. And then use that as an excuse to get rid of all of it. What we should be doing in every case that we receive feedback is asking, what's right about this feedback? I'll say that again. What's right about this feedback? Such a powerful frame, powerful mindset refresh, if you will, to look at this situation. Mastering Difficult Conversations, Chapter 6. Difficult Conversations is the number one development area for executives. Remember, this came out in a study out of Stanford. I did my own independent study when I was the managing director of a talent management firm, and I provided a series of 67 competencies for people to rank order in terms of their priorities for development. Conflict management was also number one. Several hundred executives took part in my independent study. Mastering difficult conversations is a critical part to that. And difficult conversations fundamentally represent situations where the stakes are high and there are differences of opinion on something that's important, something that matters. Because if not, it wouldn't be difficult. The primary challenge with difficult conversations is that we rarely get practice. So if we're looking at, once again, some powerful takeaways for us, one of the critical things we can do is address something right away. It's just like in the medical sciences research or for our physical health. What do they say? When you see a symptom, when something comes up, when something doesn't feel right, share it with your doctor. Don't hide it. Because what's going to happen? It's going to fester and get bigger and bigger and bigger. And addressing a conflict early is so powerful for a number of reasons. Number one, and arguably most important, is that now it's smaller. Because if I let it continue to grow, guess what? It's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's going to get harder and harder and harder to address. And I'm going to be more and more reluctant to talk about it. And a related concern on this is that, well, what am I going to do if I let this go? If something's bothering me and I let this go? Well, chances are it's going to keep happening. And then what I'm going to do is look for data. I'm going to see data that supports my frustration. And my evidence case is going to be huge. I'm just going to keep compiling more and more and more data. And when we have difficult conversations and someone has built up six months of examples, it can quickly derail and not be a constructive discussion because, well, someone's saying, well, how could you pile all this on and not talk to me about it before? And there's profound frustration around that. And one of the final things that I would share with you, a point of reflection again, is that in many cases, we judge people for a difficult conversation that we're not prepared to have. And then keep judging them for not having the conversation. So when something happens, we can speak up, we can stay silent, or we can move on. And when I talk to my clients about situations where there may be difficult conversations, they'll say, well, you know, this situation with Craig has bothered me. Well, have you talked to Craig about it? No. How come? How come? Well, because I know how Craig is going to respond. And then I'll say, okay, well, how do you know? Well, I just know, okay. Well, that's great. How do you know? Have you tried to raise this with Craig before or anything related to this before? Nope. Have you observed someone else who you know try to raise this and have heard that Craig reacts poorly? No. Have you heard? Through third-party information that Craig reacts poorly to this. No. So now the question becomes, how do you know? And if the transition from how we know, or that I do know, and now I say, well, see, Craig reacted poorly, I can keep holding Craig accountable for that and be frustrated as if it's Craig's fault. If we haven't leaned into that conversation and engaged the other person, We must, by default, let go of that frustration, recognize that I am not doing everything I can in this conflict to address it, and I'm making the choice not to engage with the other person. The last chapter of the book was also an intentional choice, and it was on mastering authentic leadership. And I had the privilege of working with a book coach who challenged me and said, Craig, you want to have value on every page, which I loved, and also talk to me about, well, close strong. Come out with an ambitious idea and challenge yourself and the reader. And authentic leadership hit the mark for me on that. There's been a lot of discussion around authentic leadership. And in my experience, a tremendous amount of the focus has been on the authentic In that way, people using authentic as an excuse to be a jerk. Well, I'm just being who I am. That's not the definition of authentic leadership because there's so little focus put on the leadership side of it. What is leadership? Getting the best out of others, rallying others around a common vision, and moving us forward positively in that direction. So, authentic leadership yes, it's about being myself. And then how do I bring the best of myself in a situation so that I can get the best out of others and we can move together towards a goal of shared importance? Alan provided so many amazing insights throughout this book, and it was such a pleasure to collaborate with him on this. What I love about Alan's masterclass in this chapter in particular is his insights on authentic leadership. And so Alan shared with me, authentic leadership means your values, your beliefs, and your behaviors are aligned. Now, what I also love about what he shares is that you're the only person who knows your values and beliefs. All other people see are your behaviors. And that's so powerful, once again, a powerful insight to ask ourselves to what extent are our behaviors representing our values and beliefs in the universe, wherever we are in our personal and professional lives. And authentic leadership means that we act consistently across similar situations. So another incredibly powerful practice for us to do is to think about what are our values? What are our beliefs? And not stopping there, going to the next level and saying, how would I live those values and those beliefs in my personal and professional life as an executive in my company? What about when I face different situations? And what I love most about Alan's perspective on authentic leadership, which really reinforced and expanded my own, is that with the top executives, the most successful executives and CEOs that I work with, their values and beliefs are front and center. They're an ongoing companion in their daily lives. And when they encounter challenging situations, difficult decisions and obstacles, They reflect on their values and beliefs, and that informs the actions they take, the words that they say. And what I love most about this, although it doesn't make the decision any easier, there are still profound impacts. It does make it, quote unquote, easier for the person because they feel in alignment with who they are. There still can be challenging implications of the choice we're making. Yet we feel centered in terms of our authentic self and the outcome that we're looking to provide. And in the final chapter of the book, a challenge, I wrote that looking at how now more than ever before, it's the most complex time to lead. It's the most challenging time to lead. And at the same time, There's never been a more important time to lead. We are facing unprecedented challenges with things moving so quickly, with competing demands in so many different areas. And being at our best in leadership positions is essential, not just for us, but also for the teams and the organizations we lead. And so now we have an important choice to make. Am I excited to take on that mantle of leadership? And do I fully accept that responsibility with all of the different things that come with it? And what my greatest hope is, is that a time to lead provides insight into the key leadership qualities we must draw on to operate in today's environment and the environments of the future. And also provides an evidence-based roadmap so that we can pull the strongest tips, tools, techniques that we can leverage, we can experiment with, and share with others. So we can be at our best, so we can be our best selves for the organizations and the communities we live in. I sincerely appreciate your interest in this episode. I would welcome feedback and comments. Please connect with me on LinkedIn or on social media. My ultimate desire is that the Do Good to Lead Well podcast provides thought-provoking and valuable practical content that you can apply in your lives so you can achieve the things that are most important to you. Until next time, stay safe and here's to your journey in positive leadership. Thank you so much for joining me here today on Do Good to Lead Well. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you can follow me on Twitter at Craig Dowden or reach out via LinkedIn or email info at craigdowden.com. I look forward to meeting you here next week for another transformational episode.